0: Are you an Aussie tradie and your paperwork is shady? Do the dockers farm side, keep you up late at night? Are you sick of pushing papers, swinging your tools the more you gave up? Call us the Tricks of Your Trade! Welcome to the Tricks of Your Trade podcast, where we talk about trade business topics to help you get through business life unscathed.
1: Does the bill to pay you late? And your cash flow fluctuates? Do you dread the office work? Can't afford a full-time clerk? Consider working smarter, don't be a business smarter. Call us the Tricks of Your Trade!
0: Welcome back, Tim, uh, to another Tricks of Your Trade podcast. Um, Today, for our listeners' benefit, we've got Tim Dive from Workplace Advisory Specialists on today to talk to us about unions and what non-EBA subbies can do to protect themselves from mishaps on job sites uh, and involvement with unions that affects their relationship with their builder and so on and so forth. Um, So thanks very much for coming along again, Tim. We had you on earlier this year.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me again.
0: Um, So if anyone's interested, you can look back on our earlier podcast and see Tim's earlier podcast with me talking about ABN workers and subcontracts for ABN workers. Um, But without further ado, Tim, I'll just get you to give us a recap on your background a little bit for any new listeners.
1: Yeah, so I'm uh, originally from Sydney and and, um, left school at a reasonably young age, around 14, and started working and I fell right into the construction sector back then. Sydney was getting ready to to uh, develop um, and build for the 2000 Olympic Games, so there was a lot of construction work around back then. So I naturally fell into that that world. Um, and uh, initially, I was an ABN holder as a lab, as a labourer, and and was uh, looking for apprenticeships and, and things like that, and it didn't happen. So, but I ended up um, staying in that game for a, a fairly long time about about twelve years or so and um, developed uh, skills and capability and plastering and all, all aspects of plastering, but also working for builders along that way. I was, I'd was done frames and trusses and um, landscaping, concreting, tiling, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I was really well-versed in construction generally. Uh, I, I moved to Queensland, though, in about 2005. And for a couple of years thereafter, I was still in the building game and construction game, and I was building residential properties uh, mostly um and then after a couple of years of that uh i decided that it would be time for a for a change for me i wasn't really loving it uh, that much anymore and and i decided to go to brisbane and look for a new opportunity and and take whatever fell in my lap on 100 and push it as far as i could go so that was uh geez that was almost 17 or 18 years ago now and um uh, so here I am now, later I've filled into the HR world and the industrial relations world, and I've had some experience in mining, construction, engineering, oil and gas and all that sort of stuff, um, yeah. and had some exposure to some pretty pretty hostile union-driven environments over the years, which is great experience. Um, so hopefully that can help some, some listeners you got today. Yeah, I
0: would say so. <laughs> Definitely the IR stuff um, in the... Oil and gas backgrounds would have given you a baptism of fire, I'd say.
1: Yeah, it's pretty pretty full on. You know, the um, uh, unions uh, had uh, back then the enterprise agreements that I was working with, and I'll I'll leave these these businesses nameless. I won't I won't put anyone in, in any any um any fire here. But you know, the, the unions became so strong in some of those industries that they were. Um, embedded in the enterprise agreement so that they're embedded in the operations of the organization so even hiring employees you you couldn't hire anyone that would be covered by an eba without without the CFMAU being present in the interview and so i would have to also train union delegates on how to interview and what was acceptable to talk about in interviews and all that sort of stuff so they were really embedded in the organization the fabric of the of the the business's operations yes Um, which meant, of course, that they disputed everything that you did. So, um, so it was a constant uh, d- uh, daily battle to try and get anything done, but uh, it, was, it was an awesome experience nonetheless.
0: Yeah. So I think there's two things that our clients talk about struggling with. Um, the first one is whether they want to play in the EBA game and whether they want to become a union subby. Um, <clears throat> and some of them have even got two businesses, one non-union, one union business. Uh, And the other thing they struggle with is our non-EBA subcontractors at the moment are really feeling the pinch with winning new work because obviously changes in government, the unions sort of have a little bit more pull and some of our clients late last year won, won jobs for a builder they were already working for on another job and then the union got wind that they'd won this new job and they were upset about it and they would go to site and ping them on some kind of bogus or minor safety problem and pick on them <clears throat> Pick on them with the view that that might stop them from being awarded the contract on the new job so that a union subbie could get the new job. So um, and then I suppose there is a third thing as well where subcontractors are so concerned that if, even though they're non-EBA subbies that if it becomes a union job, will they have to pay their staff union wages? Hmm. Yeah. That-
1: hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting um, environment, the, the EBA versus non-EBA. So the, the whole range of scenarios which you're, uh, anyone listening would, would be well-versed with, you, know, you, you might have a, an EBA-covered site itself, so the whole site's covered by the EBA, um, at which point, so are you, if you're on there and and you're you're paying those rates and and you've got no no other alternative but to deal with um, you know the, the union on that job because they're a part they're a party to the to the agreement. Um, mm-hmm. You've got non-eba projects where a un, the union may have a marquee or an area set up on site, and they might be there all the time, like a, a large project, like a for example you know an airport expansion project or something like that where got, you got know, hundred subcontractors and a principal contractor and um, you know that's not an EBA site but you yeah, the unions are on site each day um, and in, in that scenario it, it's it's a bit different you know a, a union to walk onto a site has to be permitted to do so um, <clears throat> only certain people from that union or that organization, uh, are, are authorised permit holders. They have to be approved to be a permit holder and they have to give notice for entry and they have to give a reason why they're entering and they, and, and all that sort of thing has to take place before they even set foot near the place. Mm. Um, and, and and these are these applications that have to go through the commission most of, most of the time too. So there's a really robust um, system of, of, of how they get access to workers on sites. Um, most businesses that I go to and deal with have no idea what that what that is. Um, they've got no idea that they, sh- they they can ask for the person's permit to see if they're even authorized to be there. Um, they have no idea how to challenge if they haven't received a seven day notice or whatever the notice period might be. Um, and this is why you'll often see unions walk on site and cite a safety issue as the reason why they're there, because that's the only time that they can go on to a site without giving that notice.
0: Yeah. Is that
1: if there's a if well there's that's a pretty simplistic way to say that and there's the risk that they've been that has been reported to them by someone on that site about a safety matter has to be so severe that if they were to give notice that they were coming on site um it poses that people at risk because you you'd cover it up and you'd have time so that's it's a significant um claim to make you know, to, to, yeah to to walk on site with citing that that's that's the situation that's why they're there um, but that's why they'll always typically get in that path because it avoids them having to give notice and that sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a fairly, it's a fairly challenging thing for employees on a worksite to go through as well. Um, in my experience, when I'm, when I'm working with, with clients, I'll, I'll get a random phone call and, and uh, it'll be a panicked uh, employee on a, on a site uh, who's just been ordered to down tools and stop and, and they're being threatened and, and all sorts of things. They've got a principal contractor that's kicking them in the in the bum every day to get things going, get things moving. Their own boss is is giving them the same instructions, but they've got this union delegate on site threatening violence, even sometimes. You know, yeah. if they were to continue. Um, <clears throat> so, it's it's a really really harsh situation to be in. Sometimes um, some unions are notoriously hostile, and others aren't, but. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a hard one to navigate. So you, you understand why people don't really know how to handle it and where they might be a bit hesitant to, to challenge and fight back.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think in a lot of instances too, um, when there's a safety issue, the subbies are a bit embarrassed as well or feel like they've got some level of culpability or they've done something wrong and so they're on the back foot rather than feeling like they're on the front foot from a position of strength where they can sort of stand up for themselves. Um, but in those instances, oftentimes when the site is shut down, even if the builder decides to direct the subbie to stop work, as opposed to the union, um, they'll often be, the builder will often come after them for delay costs. And mm-hmm. particularly if other trades have been stood down or if other trades have been taken away. And One of the things that I often find very interesting is that when you look at a builder's subcontract or a commercial builder's subcontract, I should qualify, um, it's very difficult to get delay costs as a subcontractor. So if the builder's coming to you and saying, hey, I want you to pay me back these delay costs, we had a call recently and there was a a claim from a builder who was claiming about 10 grand in delay costs for a day shutdown. They were saying there was something like 40 or something electricians who were stood down for three hours and they wanted all that money and when we actually looked into the contract from the builder we unravelled the knot and worked out that the delay cost per day for this particular builder in their standard form contract is $1 per day so if the electrician had exactly the same contract our guy did which is likely the most they could possibly have got in damages or paid out in damages would have been $1 a day so the damages claim against our guy was no more than a dollar I often find that really um, amusing and poetic when the builder's really unfair contract term twisted back against them means that they get the dodgy end of the deal as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, there's, um, there, there's, there's there platforms you can stand on too in that scenario. So let's say you know, that um, process that a union has to go through to enter a site, um, if it's just a routine um, site visit where they're, they're allowed to do this. You know, they're allowed to go on site, and they, the site they're entering, the the worker or the company on that site has to provide um, a place where where the union can go on and and meet their workers if the workers are interested in meeting them and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it, it's it, it's all um, it's all legitimate. But when a union comes on site um, without showing a permit, without having given notice, or maybe they gave notice to another company, they didn't give notice to you. Um, but they, while they're there visiting another company, that they may they may have said to them, "Oh, we've got a safety reason, that's why well. we're here." But then they walk down the down the construction site and see you working, and they make you pull up. Um, you you really want to be telling them to go away, you know, we, you know? Where's where's your right of entry? Where's your where's your complaint for safety? Where's your permit? Where's this? And and just start asking those questions because more often than not, um, they're going to try this on. You know, they're they're, they're trained antagonists. They 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 don't really. Uh, follow the rules that they're supposed to follow, and they've got no intention to do so most of the time. And you can see that it's evidenced by the um, enormous amount of penalties these unions pay for breaching employment law and, and a Fair Work Act. Um, you know, if they were that concerned with companies complying with the Act, then they're, they're the heaviest uh, breaches of it. So um, you really should feel secure and safe to stand on 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 your own processes, your own practices, your own risk assessments and stand on them and say, no, where's your permit? We've done the right thing. Now you show me that you're doing the right thing yeah. and then we can talk. Um, yes. And that can hopefully stop some delays and claims coming.
0: Yep. So interesting question. And tell me if I'm navigating into waters you're not comfortable talking about. Mm. Um, but we all hear these rumours about brown paper bags worth of cash. And it just may spring to mind when you were talking about unions paying lots in fines and penalties. Is there any data around how much the unions make versus how much they pay out? I'd be so interested to know, what are the ways in which unions make money?
1: Very good question. <laughs> Very good question. And it's a it's a grey area. Uh, um, you know, declining union numbers, uh, membership numbers have been declining for a number of years rapidly. Um, And uh, some of these unions are growing stronger and stronger and stronger, it would seem. Um, You know, in terms of their earnings, these are businesses that um, have gone and started up uh, superannuation companies and and, and all kinds of other other businesses outside of the the union itself. So um, they're making a lot of money. They're, they're making bulk dollars on investments so they're they're managing through funds in superannuation and all, all kinds of things and um the labor government they're tied to the labor government as well so who knows what that connection is and whether whether money comes through uh between those those bodies but um it's it's such a gray area to really put your finger on and say they earn this much and they spend that much in penalties but you know there, there was a um I'd be completely unprepared for this question. If, if it, uh, There was a period of time that I read about um, from a very reliable source not too long ago where um, the union, so the CFMU, for example, before their merger had paid in excess of $10 million in penalties for breaches of the Act. Um, and they were paying those fines on behalf of their members. So they were their members were encouraged, they were trained and encouraged to break to break the rules, yes, to disrupt organisations, and um, in return for doing that, the union would pay the the, the personal fines. Um, there's been some movements to try and stop that and prevent unions being able to do that. I, I've got no, um, I don't believe that that's that's happening. I I, I think that that they'll they'll still find ways to pay those fines. Yes. Um, but you know we've all we've all seen we've all seen the brown paper bag deals in the in the um, in the news, you know, the heads of unions have been um, rubbished all through media for, for having houses built and, and and very expensive gifts and and lavish lavish expenses covered. Um, you know, I won't name names, but um, uh, th- th- it exists in the in the news all over the place. So, yes. uh, yeah, there's bad eggs everywhere, and a lot, there's a bunch of them in the unions. So, <laughs> there's no doubt about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, they say um, first year. Law student. The first thing one of my contract law professors said was, "Just follow the money." Just yep. Follow best case management strategies is follow the money. Um, so, in terms of subcontractors who are non EBA subbies, it can be a really daunting thing, wondering what your future is going to be like in the industry. Because particularly now, when we're looking at unions having more legs or more leash uh, with the current government. And particularly in terms of um in Queensland with project trust accounts and things like that, it seems like there's likely to be a movement towards more tier one contractors getting a lot of big jobs. And mm-hmm. if I think back to my really early years in construction, working for builders, it was when they called the the Burrs, the, the sports halls for schools days, mm-hmm. when the tier ones would get the contract with the government and they would subcontract the entire job to a tier two builder and there was so much more of a union stronghold back then but a lot of the subbies and builders started to wonder whether there was going to be a place for them whether they had to actually become you know unionized or whether they could still play in the sandpit and get away with it Mm. what are your thoughts in terms of i should maybe i should ask what are some of the things that the subcontractors should know about if they're thinking about becoming a an EBA or a union subcontracting business, how will their business change? What, mm-hmm. what are the types of things like overheads, running the business, hiring staff? What would happen differently for a union Subby versus a non-union Subby?
1: Yeah, it's um depends largely on the agreements that, that that are struck, you know, and and what what that means for the organization. So, you know. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, a union will a union will typically approach you if you're a non eba company and you're you're on a site and they become aware of you, they'll they'll approach you and say, "Look, just give us one member, give us one member, and we'll leave you alone." You know, that, that's that's what they always say. Um, uh, I've had that phone call from clients of mine. I can't tell you how many times where they they say, "Should, should I do this?" Um, what that means is if they've got one member of your organisation, they they're now entitled to come in and 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 at any time uh, represent. Um, yeah, you know, that that person or be a part of that organization's decision making uh, and impose their will uh, in, in some way at at such time as they deem it necessary to do so for whatever means they have. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds very conspiratorial, but trust me, it is. You know, it, it really is. There's there's an intention uh, for this union movement to to get stronger and stronger and control entire sectors and and all that sort of stuff. That does exist. We we, we know that's real. Um, so the very first thing they'll do is, is they'll, they'll often try to get the director of the company to be the member too because then that, that employee is going to always be there. Um, they're not going to leave and disappear. Um, so um, that's one thing that if you decide that, yeah, okay, um, you know what, we're not going to do enterprise bargaining agreements with you. We're not going to do that, but I'll, I'll, I'll be your member and I'll raise it all what that means is that they now have a right to access your company um, at whatever point in time they they want to because they cover a member there, they represent a member. Um, So that's one thing that that businesses should be aware of that often they're not. Um, The next thing with enterprise bargaining agreements. So, It's hard to tell right now. We're still very fresh with these amendments. So um, these amendments to the Fair Work Act, a lot of them revolve around enterprise bargaining agreements and and what unions can do and what the Fair Work Commission can do. Um, But um, if a union is a party to your your EBA, um, they don't have to be. Um, You you can have an enterprise bargaining agreement without union involvement at all um, between you and your employees and they can just be their own representatives. Um, but where a union is becoming involved, the agreement um, uh, has them as a party to it. Um, they can now leverage everything that the Act allows them to leverage and the Commission allows them to leverage to control how that agreement will work. Um, right now, if you've, got, um, if you've got an agreement that has expired less than five years ago, um, there's avenues that a union can take now to impose, well, to impose orders by the commission on you to renegotiate. And if that doesn't work pretty quickly, they can now request the, the, uh, the commission to make the rules for you. Um, that, that wasn't in existence before. Um, so th- this is an evolving thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what it means for headcount and costs is your costs are going to go up. There's no doubt about that. Um, and you're also going to lose control of how you remunerate your people. Uh, that's the biggest thing that for me would scare me as a business owner so if i've if i've got a strategic plan that i've that i'm working on and i'm looking three to five years ahead um, and i want to incentivize certain types of work and certain behaviors and de deincentivize, de-incentivize others that are against that strategic plan uh, I, I can't do that I have no way to do it, and if I try to do it, I'm going to come up against um, a lot of um, disputes, and it's going to tie me up in in the commission, and it's going to be arguments, and the relationship will sour. Mm. But you've got this EBA that they're a party to, and it's never going away. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to if you want to apply to cancel that agreement after it's expired, then they can dispute that in the commission against you. So it's it's uh, a yeah. one of those things that once you go in, you're all in. You know, and you're going to be in that scenario for a while. Um, be ready and prepared for that. Um, if you're deciding that you're going to go and um, bring a union in with the enterprise bargaining agreement. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, but, but that's, that's just, you know, some of the other things that I'll say, um, you know, th- these aren't going to sound good and, and um, you, you should be aware of it, but you're going to have a divided workforce. You, you, you employees who are, union covered or covered by the EBA, are going to be repeatedly communicated to um, with the intention to separate them from management and mm-hmm. to, to have control over that workforce. That's the intention of, of that relationship. Um, that is failing somewhat these days, but it's still there. And, and I see it everywhere I go, that the, the mistrust between um, you know good relationships that you once had before, um, the mistrust that gets developed when you bring a union in and you have a union-covered workforce and others who aren't, there's, mm-hmm. there's just this separation there um, and you'll never get that back. It's a culture killer. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll also find, um, you know, trying to handle uh, things that should be just uh, uh, an issue raised between a person and their supervisor, it'll go to the union first. Um, they'll be in and they'll, they'll use that to beat their chest and to get other things over the line. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, I can go on and on with things that I've seen <laughs> behaviourally, what actually happens, but um, those are all real things that do and will happen. So um, be prepared for that if if you want to get down that road.
0: Yeah. Well, it was interesting uh, we saw last year a few u- big union builders doing some sneaky suburban non-EBA projects, mm-hmm. trying to do them with very cheap rates. And It comes from that comment you made about you have little control over what you pay people, but also you need to have the flexibility and the nimbleness in your business to react in terms of the industry and the economy and the supply and demand so that you've always got work. Mm -hmm. And these builders had picked up these little sort of townhouse projects out in the burbs thinking that they could just get in some non-EBA subbies. And, you know, to... Three weeks after the site fence went up, suddenly the site was converted and it was going to be a union job and they'd employed all of the service trades and those contracts were now up in the air because the subbies were saying, well, we're not paying more, we can't pay more, you engaged us on the basis that we were giving you a discount and you knew what my price was and this was because I was a non-EBA subbie. It's the only way I can do this job. And it seems like the builders are trapped as well. It's not just the subcontractors, but the builders get trapped in this world where, you know, they're driving their Rolls-Royce everywhere, for want of a better analogy, mm. and really, you know, it's sort of like a high end i gets type job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, and yeah, yeah, builders aren't, you know, principal contractors and builders and, and, and all those guys aren't uh, exempt from, from all, all this sort of stuff. They... They play his game on a higher level you know they've got uh long term relationships with the unions and these delegates who, who are in positions and in, in place in the unions now they're they are doing deals of their own don't worry about that you know they're they're, they're getting smooth rides in other projects and other ones are going to are going to the doghouse um that that's happening so um yeah it's uh it's a it's a it's a messy scenario <laughs> it really is you know but um, the the best thing you can do, if, in my book, the best thing any any company can do is um, is, is remain in control of your business as, as much as you possibly can. Um, enterprise bargaining agreements remove that from you. Yes. Um. What, one of the good things so that everyone would have heard about multi enterprise bargaining or or industry but bar, industry wide bargaining and that sort of thing being brought into this um, these new IR amendments. Um, they're real. That you, know, you can be pulled into to other agreements um, that exist in your industry. That does exist in the, in the in the Act now. Um, but if you're if you're there are exclusions for the for the construction industry. There's a, a number of exclusions now. If you're an employee, if you're an employer who has less than fifty employees, you're considered small small employer. Now, this is a different number than what the Fair Work Commission would apply to determine you as a small business employer. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in their definition, you have 15 employees who are systematic and regular. Um, so casuals who aren't systematic and regular wouldn't be counted. Um, but this is just everyone's counted in this 50 number um so you'd be exempt from that multi-employer uh, bargaining that's uh, that's being imposed but you know i again i think we've got to see how this rolls out in the next um 12 months to 18 months to really see um what unions are challenging for and what challenges companies are winning back against them to see what it all really means in reality um mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's going to be an interesting time, but everyone just needs to be aware that unions are trained to disrupt. Um, so be ready for the disruption, be prepared for it, and, and don't be caught off guard by it. Be, be ready with things in place, strategies in place to control them as much as you possibly can um, and keep as much control as you can in your company.
0: Yeah, no, that's really good advice. So if one of our subcontractors is on a job site and the union shows up, have you got, um, what should they do? Should they contact someone like you should, is there a way they can get prepared? Is there like a checklist or a, have you got a little training they could do or could they contact you for some advice on that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. and Anyone can contact me at any time. I'm, I'm, I'm known for just, um, having a chat and giving as much advice as I can, you know, and, and, um, I, I, you know, it doesn't become like you're engaging me until it's really we're getting into some work and that sort of thing. So I'm always happy to have a chat and give some instructions uh, where I can. Um, but, yeah, you should have a checklist. You should have you should have a, a list of, you know, one to five, six, seven things where you you, you, you want to check this delegate's um, permit. Are you a permit holder? Do you have a permit? Did you get a right of entry notice? What are you here? Why, why are you here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now you would have known about that right of entry seven days prior, or would, would, I, I, I'll just I'll check that and just double check, but that that might have changed. But I believe it's still seven days. Could be different, um, but that notice of then coming on site, you should have received that. You should be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and just talk, just talking to them and not not being pulled into the the threats, um, the um, the aggressive nature of their approach. Um, don't let that rattle you that that's the whole intention of it the whole intention is to get on there and rattle you and have their free uh, free reign of, of the work site, beat their chest make everyone feel and, and uh, feel and believe that they're there, actually doing something of value um, so just calm it down don't react ask for their permit ask for the right of entry confirm what they're there for um, you know just make sure that they're, they're doing the right thing on site you know there, there's certain things that they are are allowed to do and many things they're not allowed to do on, while they're on their site. So mm-hmm. um, it'll be too difficult to run through all those things right now and explain them, but um, just get your head around that. Create a little checklist or a policy for your people to have and, um, and, and that should help a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's really great. Um, So for anyone listening to this, we'll put Tim Dive's details in the show notes for this episode. So if you'd like to make contact with Tim, I recommend that you do so and do it proactively before you are bleeding from the neck and need this help urgently. Um, Get on the front foot so that you know what to say when you are poked by the bear. Um, All right. Well, thanks very much again, Tim, for another great episode on our podcast. It's been a pleasure having you.
1: My pleasure. Thanks.
0: If you have any questions about what I've talked about on this podcast, feel free to drop me a good old-fashioned email at questions at tricksofyourtrade.com.au. If you would like a systematic approach to your contract administration and getting paid, head on over to our website and check out the Subbies Toolbox. You won't be disappointed there. And just one last time, our web address is www.tricksofyourtrade.com.au.